Welcome to the Recovering from Religion podcast. We are a vibrant international community for those who have questions or doubts about their faith. I'm your host, Tim Rimel, along with my co-host, Bill Prickett. We're very excited uh, to have our guest today with us, uh, Janice Selby. She was born and raised in a charismatic Christian home. She has attended uh, Pentecostal, uh, Vineyard, and Evangelical churches. I can't wait to talk to her about Vineyard because I have some, some background in that as well. Before she eventually married a pastor in her 30s, she became, uh, in her words, ultra-conservative. Uh, she donned a head covering. She began homeschooling her children and rejected any vestiges of secular life, such as TV, radio, music, newspapers, magazines, probably podcasts. Uh, it wasn't until her 40s that she began experiencing doubts about her faith. And as her marriage unraveled, her questions grew. So we're going to be talking to her about all the things that led up to that. So Janice, thank you very much for being with us. We're glad you're here. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So Janice, tell us about your childhood. You, you grew up like I did in the charismatic movement, Pentecostal movement. What was that like for you? Um, well, I love singing and I love music. So that, of course, was always uh, just my favorite thing. And I remember uh, sometimes if I was lucky, mom and dad would let me stand up on the pew in between them. And uh, even though I couldn't, maybe couldn't read the hymnal, I could pretend to follow along and sing along. And, uh, and the church has always had really upbeat music. And so that was something I enjoyed. Um, but my, my home life, our family was quite serious because, of course, we always had to be about our father's business, meaning God and converting people, saving souls. And I'm the youngest of four children. Um, so yeah, there wasn't, I don't feel like there was a lot of laughter in our home. There was a lot of love and my dad was quite, uh, an authoritarian person and, uh, still tends to be that way, still very black and white. And mm. so, uh, he wasn't physically abusive to us, but, uh, sometimes things felt unsafe. He sometimes would punch holes in the walls and, wow. um, we knew when he came home, when we would hear his truck coming home from work, we would kind of scatter in our various directions to just hide in our bedroom because we didn't know what kind of mood he would be in. But of course, on Sunday, he was, uh, <laughs> by the time we got to the church, he was all, he was ready to go and greet everybody and just happy and very affable. And uh, he was highly respected, but there might have been a lot of yelling going on in the car on the way to church. So that's kind of what it was like. Did he come from a religious background or your mom? His parents were uh, Christian scientists. And I think that mm. actually played into, um, I get, he definitely has some mental health um, issues, which are not, you know, that's not a surprise to people who know him. And so one issue is uh, being a hypochondriac. And sometimes that can come from uh, folks if, if their parents did not acknowledge when they were ill. Yeah. Uh, and certainly that happens, that can happen in Christian science homes. Oh, yes, Def definitely. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of one of the foundational things there. Absolutely. <laughs> and so I think that really played into some aspects of his uh, personality. Although it took me, I didn't put those things together until I became a mental health professional myself. And then I was able to start. <laughs> connecting a lot of the dots. My mom was raised um, in a, a home where, you know, the parents may have, they may have gone to church a few times a year, but I don't think they were every Sunday type of people. But my folks had their big conversion experience um, in the 1960s when they'd been married a few years before they had children. And they were saved into the Plymouth Brethren, which is quite a rigid kind of group. 
Anabaptist background. That's yes, and then they uh, eventually they they found that too constricting, and uh, by the time I was little, uh, we were evangelical all the way, real holy rollers, slain mm-hmm. in the spirit, uh, speaking in tongues, dancing in the aisles types. Tim, Tim understands all that. I, I do. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that was that was Tuesday for us. <laughs> <laughs> what is the relationship that you have with your siblings, and is it different than you had it when you were growing up? Yes. So my, um, I have two older brothers and an older sister and my sister, uh, was brought in as a foster sister. She's uh, in Canada. She's what we call first nations. So she's Aboriginal or indigenous. And in Canada in the 1960s and seventies, we had something called the sixties sweep and the government, uh, paid evangelical families to foster, Native children who were really kidnapped off the reserves, taken off the reserves. Um, and so the evangelicals saw it as an opportunity, of course, to to try and do something good because they felt that the children were being raised in poor conditions, but also to share the gospel with them. So that's how my sister came to us. And she came to us when I was four and she was seven. And to me, that's how I thought sisters arrived was at the door with a suitcase because I was the youngest. I didn't know anything about uh, how other kids would come to be in a home. Um, And we, we were never terribly close. I would say we have a a healthy relationship now. Um, She is not religious and neither are my older two brothers. And we, weren't very close all the years that I was religious, but since uh, divorcing religion, I have become very close with my brothers. You said that uh, you kind of started out in the Brethren Church, which is pretty strict. And my folks did. Your folks did. Yes, before I was born. It has the Anabaptist roots, but then later in your life, you went back to your Anabaptist roots mm-hmm. by kind of connecting with the Mennonites and even a very strict sect of the Mennonite church. Yes, uh, I think to the horror of my mother, because she has always been a much more relaxed person, and that also plays out in her faith. Uh, She's never been a real black and white thinker. Um, She's much more about the love and mercy aspect. Um, But for me, I think growing up, in a home with a very authoritarian father, I learned quite early that following rules could keep me safe. Um, And so I became very comfortable with rules. And that was definitely part of what drew me to the uh, Haldemans, which is the the sect of Mennonite uh, in Canada that I was drawn to, because I saw that they were uh, really the ones taking the gospel seriously, as far as I could tell, like eschewing, you know, modern day life and just dressing very modestly. And um, I thought if I'm if I'm going to obey the Bible, like if I'm in for a pinch, I'm in for a pound. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of and my husband at the time, he wasn't that way. He, he was a more uh, relaxed fellow and he was sometimes quite uncomfortable as I made my circle smaller and smaller. And to my mind, I was doing it to be obedient to scripture and to help me become a better wife. Um, So, yeah, interesting. It is interesting. I have always been fascinated with the Anabaptist tradition. In seminary, one of my professors was considered one of the leading authorities on Anabaptist history, and I took his Mm -hmm. course. And so the Amish have been an area I've studied. And so I I understand or I I appreciate some of that, uh, that history there. But in one of your bios that I read of you, you refer to yourself as a Pentecostal, which uh, (laughs) amalgamation of a Mennonite and a Pentecostal. I, I know that there are a lot of different aspects of Mennonite and Anabaptist, but this is a new one for me. A Mennonite Pentecostal, is that unusual or were you just an anomaly? Uh, I think, um, I think I was, uh, an anomaly, but I I can't be sure. (laughs) Um, yeah, but it's uh, for me again, music 
was uh, such a big part of my life. And in the closed Mennonite circles, there are no instruments in the church. Men sit on one side, women sit on the other, and it's um, they might use a pitch, uh, like a pitch pipe, just to get the pitch. Um, but, uh, and I had been, I had grown up in, in choirs and um, things like this. And so I had a huge collection of uh, contemporary Christian music and, um, you know, including various hymns and so forth. And so I still really enjoyed listening to those and found it really reached me kind of worshiping in that way still. So I didn't want to give those things up. Okay. That makes sense. I just, that just, that was just curious to me. So I, I wanted to ask. Yeah. And I, I was curious too. I, I had <laughs> never really had much interaction or any interaction uh, with folks that wore uh, head coverings. Um, and it wasn't until I started reading in the new Testament and figuring out, Oh, this is actually why they do it. And then I was questioning, why doesn't everybody, why don't all women do this? And then when I started covering, uh, and I was the only one on the Bible college campus who did, uh, then the Holdemans started to approach me because they were curious. They'd never seen anyone outside their group in this town who wore a head covering. When you talk about Pentecostals in the Mennonite church, I, I see two different things because it sounds like they were pretty silent and quiet and obedient. Yep. That, that was not my experience in the Pentecostal. Well, I mean, let me rephrase that. My experience in the Pentecostal church was that women were definitely quiet and obedient, but when it came to worship, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll say all hell broke loose, but I mean, it, it was, you know, it was Jericho marches. Mixing metaphors there. I, I know. My apologies. <laughs> yeah. And I would, I agree um, with that. I mean, my experience in the Pentecostal church, there were, there were women, some women who were preachers. Um, right. There were, uh, yeah, there wasn't a lot that was quiet uh, or subservient that I saw, particularly of women in the Pentecostal uh, movement. Um, but I did see that certainly in the Mennonite movement. And what, one thing that surprised me and saddened me was to see that there was abuse and there was uh, a lot of depression amongst the Mennonite people and particularly the women. I bet, I imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Was there something about the Mennonite, and I use the word culture loosely, I don't mean to, to classify it as cultural, but the, 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 the rules, the structure, the, the way they dress and, and the simplicity of, was there something about that that drew you to it? Was, is it part of your personality to just want to be that kind of, uh, of, of simplified minimalist? I would say that I have a personality of extremes and I am, I tend to be, I'm either all one way or I'm all the other way. I'm constantly searching for that elusive middle ground. And so it certainly fit with my personality to make such a drastic change, but I was at the same time, very genuine about it. I, I loved uh, my God deeply and wanted to serve uh, reverently. And um, so to me that those were beautiful. If the Bible thought that those things were what made a beautiful woman, um, you know, holy, that's, then that's what I wanted. And that's why I went in that direction. And I didn't know at first how, like how rule oriented they were. So I could have, I could maybe have flowers on my dress, but they couldn't be, they couldn't be smaller than a nickel and they couldn't be larger than a quarter. Cause if they're too big, uh, you know, then it's just drawing too much attention to you. And likewise, if the pattern is too small, it looks too busy and people will be looking at you. Or if you have a car and it has a stereo in it, you have to rip your stereo out. Um, you can have a microwave, uh, but you can't have uh, internet although you can have a fax machine. So there were all sorts of different interesting rules and regulations that they liked. As you look back on your life now as a therapist, mm -hmm. what drove you to such a rule-ridden faith? Yeah, I, I really do think it's because of the home that I was raised in um, and just feeling I felt safe if I 
if I knew the rules and I obeyed the rules, I was much less likely to get in trouble or incur my father's wrath. Uh, so I just felt very, very safe with rules. And also, I think that's somewhat typical of fundamentalists in general. Black and white thinking is much easier. That's true. It's hard to exist in the gray. I liked knowing I could go this far and no farther. I liked knowing I can say this, but I can't say this. I can wear this, but I can't wear this. It's kind of lazy in a way, um, but it uh, it made me feel safer. It's been a real transition coming out of that and trying to figure out life on my own. Well, I think I think that's one of the draws of fundamentalism is mm -hmm. we like the rules. We like to be told. We like the black and white. I, I mean, all of us, uh, Tim and I both came from fundamentalist backgrounds, uh, different in, in the expression, but I do understand wanting to know the rules and wanting to know it 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 doesn't take as much thought or figure and i don't want to you know just kind of paint with such a broad stroke but i, I do understand that mm -hmm. well, i think it's i think it's a personality type I, you know and again the chicken or the egg thing do are, are we that way so we go into these kind of religions or do we go into these religions and become that way it you know i i know i, I talk about this too when i speak sometimes is that it's and Brene brown actually brought this up but it's living this life of uncertainty mm -hmm. where really that's the place of possibility however yes. When you come from faith, it becomes a place of certainty. So this this idea of things hoped for and uh, the unseen, they it's the exact opposite of what uncertainty is. I mean, oh that, yeah, and humans hate ambiguity for the most part. Yes, we do. Right, we really like hard. certainty. <laughs> and it's one of those things that's really hard to break when you leave a, a faith like that, where everything is so certain, and suddenly you're finding yourself, you know, what do I do on Sunday? Mm -hmm. Who do I talk to? Um, is it okay to say a swear word? I mean, all of these things suddenly hit us when we're rethinking our faith and what we believe. They sure do. And, uh, and I definitely went through a time uh, when I left religion and I no longer believed. I went through a time of kind of being like, I can try everything. I'm going to try everything. I never had a real teenage and a real adolescence. So now I'm going to try it. And so I I did. And I, yeah. my children had a front row seat to that gong show, but uh, <laughs> we, somehow we all survived intact. Right. <laughs> yeah. And they were about, um, I think they were about 10 and 12 when I started first having my doubts. And then uh, when I really was fully in deconversion mode, they were about, uh, maybe 14 and 16 mm -hmm. that went on for a few years. Okay. I think, I think mine were nine and 11 mm -hmm. when it start when it started to come out, because they're both in Christian schools and, right. and um, I was getting, so was her mom. We we're just getting increasingly uncomfortable with what the school was teaching them when that really wasn't what real life was about. And it was the same thing, right? You're, you're making decisions for your kids and you're second guessing yourself. Should I say this? Why is that wrong? You know, because oh. they challenge you too. And now you're, you're challenging yourself about, I don't know, maybe you're right. Well, and then I, I also, so even though I, I knew that I was rejecting uh, what, what I had been taught in church and I didn't, I kind of went into a, a new age, you know, I didn't just become an atheist. I went to like new age kind of thing. And, but I still had lingering fears about uh, hell. And I thought, I, I, I'm making, I'm a mature adult. I can make this decision for myself that I am not going to serve a God that I don't think is there. But, but I don't want to be responsible for my children going to hell. So that really, uh, you know, that weighed heavily on me. When you were breaking free of, uh, I guess, the control, you're breaking free of the control. What was that experience like for you? Because I know it happens gradually, but were you able to reflect on the things like I can I have to wear a dress that only has you know a flower the size between a right. size of a nickel and a quarter? I mean, what what was going through your mind at that point? I liken my breaking free to the experience of uh, a beach ball that's held underwater, and when you take your hands off, that sucker just goes flying up into the air. And there's such, there's such freedom and there's such force. And 
And when I came to the point um, that I decided I was no longer going to be bound by any of the teachings that I had uh, sat under my whole life for religion, I felt I felt that way too. I felt very free, but I also felt terrified, like a kind of like a little toddler. If you let them out uh, in the yard and there's no fence, mm-hmm. you know, it's scary. Scary things could come in and get me, or I could run out and hurt myself <laughs> in scary, scary ways. I'm I'm really fortunate that I came through it so well. I know a lot of folks who um, end up struggling with drug and alcohol or end up going right back into fundamentalism because they can't handle the loss of community. Or, or a different form of fundamentalism that, yeah. as you mentioned, oh, we, we will yeah. we will shift gears <laughs> and we'll grab onto something so tenaciously that we are absolutely certain of this. Mm-hmm. And we're right, and, and everybody else is wrong. Yeah, fundamentalist atheists, I, I know some yeah. of them. And mm-hmm. I was going to ask, as you begin to, you talked about the beach ball, and, and and when you let go and get to a place where you you mentioned the, the story of a child out of the backyard. I used to, I used to use that in, an, in sermon illustrations. Uh, mm-hmm. There is a, a sense of security when we have the fence and when the fence is gone, we feel kind of, okay, I don't know what to do now. I can go anywhere, but where do I go? Did you experience maybe sadness or feelings of, of, I don't know what to do now? I was so sad. I really uh, grieved hard because it's not just, it's not just one loss or one type of grief. There are several types of loss and grief that we go through, that we experience when we lose our faith. And the, so the losses are multiple. Uh, I think the one I struggled the most with was coming to the realization that perhaps heaven doesn't exist. That one was really, really hard. And it was years before I could even actually look at that and and take that apart and face the possibility of that. I mean, truthfully, none of us knows what happens after, but uh, to even just have the threat of losing that, because that was my great hope. And that's what I lived for. And so even knowing my parents would get old and die or that I might lose my kids or whatever, I I had faith that I would see them again one day. And uh, then to not feel so sure about that was really hard. And I just was terribly sad. Um, No longer feeling I had a cosmic big brother watching out for me or someone, you know, who cared about the smallest details of my life. That really hurt. Do you think that's part of the reason or, or maybe this, maybe do you see this as part of the, the deconversion process where you went from the Mennonites to the vineyard movement to, you know, kind of slowly getting more quote unquote liberal, if you will? Yeah, I think it was all, um, I think it was all steps along the way. Um, mm-hmm. And like I say, my, the man that I was married to at the time, um, he never was as you know, uptight or gung-ho, however you want to say it, as I was. He didn't become religious until his late teens. So his identity had already formed. Mine was hijacked in infancy, you know, with indoctrination. Uh, So even, and he has, he no longer believes either. He's walked his own journey. Um, But his sense of loss was very different from mine. He talks more about kind of feeling embarrassed that he ever, you know, went out on the street witnessing to people, that sort of thing. I don't feel any embarrassment about it at all. I just feel like it was heartbreaking. And uh, I have to just keep going and live my life. And life is very different for me now. I'm completely free, but I'm also completely responsible. And I think that's healthy. I, I, it is mm-hmm. easy to look back and, and think I, I I have been doing that in a process of working on my next book of seeing some of where I've been. And at times I do get embarrassed thinking, what what was I thinking? Obviously, I wasn't thinking. And right. <laughs> and I regularly have people from my past uh, who have let go of some of it kind of want to put me down in that. And I have to keep reminding myself that I didn't know what I didn't know. 
No, and, and you were until totally I, genuine. Until I knew it. And, and, and so I have to continually remind myself, and it's kind of the mantra that I live by these days as I look back on my past in conversion therapy and, and as a fundamentalist, I didn't know what I didn't know. I, it was what I had been taught. And so when, when you talk about that, I think it's, I, I think it's a very healthy approach to it. And it, it took me years to get to that. Right. Yeah. You know, I remember being in a uh, biology class in grade 12 and my biology teacher, this was in public school, uh, telling me that men and women had the same number of ribs. And I, you could have knocked me over with a feather. I was so shocked. I had just assumed <laughs> all the time, of course, that there was a difference in the number because woman in one story was created from the rib of uh, man. Mm-hmm. And, and then of course now, uh, as I have um, deconverted and have really tried to immerse myself in science, uh, it's still really hard for me sometimes. I mean, the things I learned are like chewing gum stuck in my brain. (laughs) Trying to embrace evolution as a fact proves to be monumentally difficult Mm -hmm. for me. And I, and I watch the shows and yes, yes, I'm learning about this and yes, it's true. And then I'm like, but is it really? That's just because I was taught the opposite for so many years and because those teachings were also instilled with fear. So Mm -hmm. it makes them even more tenacious. Yeah. And they're like old tapes that just uh, sometimes just all by themselves start playing in our heads. Oh, I I can't tell you the number of times in a day that Bible verses Mm -hmm. pop up in my head. Like I'll just hear somebody in the elevator or somewhere. They'll say a phrase and right away. Oh. I know a verse for that. Oh, yeah. Or I'm I'm trying to do dishes or I'm in the shower or something. And what am I going to sing? Oh, I'll sing this hymn because what else is there to sing? So. Uh, my husband gets to hear it. We'll be watching TV and and verses from the Bible, like passages from Shakespeare, do end up in a lot of writers. And, and so their characters on TV will say something. And before yeah. I think about it, I'll say, oh, that's from Philippians chapter four, or that's from <laughs> Romans chapter. I just, it just pops out this, it's stuck mm-hmm. in there and it won't come out. Um, yeah. We're going to, we're going to take a break in just a second to do a quick commercial, but before we do, and we want to come back and talk to you about, you know, what's happened since then and some of your training, but I have to ask you a quick question on yeah. your journey uh, through the Mennonites and growing up Pentecostal, at what point did you get involved with Vineyard? Oh, um, well, my husband uh, and I met at a Pentecostal church, which was pretty vineyardy. Like there was the, you know, rock and roll, Christian rock and roll type of thing. And then uh, a vineyard church opened up in our city while we were living, uh, I think while we were living out of town, maybe even before that. And so we we had waffled back and forth between the Pentecostal church. Um, and the Vineyard Church, we couldn't stomach some of the things. They seemed just too ridiculous, gold <laughs> gold teeth fillings and stuff like this and holy laughter. And we yeah. we took our faith very seriously and just felt like that that didn't fit right. with us. Right. But we certainly attended Pentecostal churches with people being slain in the spirit, you know, so everybody has their limits, I guess. So you didn't fall for the holy laughter? That was, that was a big thing in the 90s. No, it made me so uncomfortable. Sometimes I would actually leave the service because I felt to me, it felt like a mockery. And I know they weren't. I know those people were, you know, equally sincere and genuine. But to me, it just did not feel um, right. See, that came that came along after I had I was involved in the vineyard uh, in the 80s. I actually knew the founder of the vineyard and and several uh, several of the vineyard mothership church and uh, Anaheim were friends of mine, some of the people who wrote some of the vineyard music. So that's why I was just curious about vineyard because I have that connection to it and was just curious. But the the holy laughter, I remember that came in later and I had kind of moved away from it at that point. So I was just curious. I just was just the... It was pretty much the music that drew us in. I I (laughs) totally understand that. I I still, the music still gets in my head uh, to this day because again, because some Mm -hmm. of my friends were there and wrote some of the music. Yeah. And it was beautiful music. Were you, were you um, involved or I'm sure you've heard of the Brownsville revival that went on? Uh, Yeah, that, that wasn't, uh, again, that was something that I just didn't really feel super comfortable with. Same with the Toronto Blessing. 
and it's it's the same kind of uh, same kind of idea. We really we loved the music in the vineyard, and we thought the dancing was okay. We thought the flagging, dancing around with flags and stuff was kind of weird, but it it was it was it looked nice. Uh, <laughs> but but things that went beyond that, like Rodney Howard Brown, that sort of stuff, it was just too much for us. Well, I, you know, I got involved with the black church. So when Brownsville came along, that was right up my alley. It was just, you know, a bunch of white people doing their thing. <laughs> but that was, I'd been, I'd been in it for so many years that it all seemed very natural and very normal. And, right. and I do, I sing spirituals and gospel music around my house. And uh, that's what my husband puts up with. So, and you still sing, you're still comfortable singing those I, songs? Absolutely. Mm. I, I love them. I listen to it when I go to the gym. I, I, I love it. I love the music. <laughs> That wonderful Hammond B3 is the best instrument ever made. Oh, yes. So, and I play, I still play. So, I'll, you know, when nobody's here, I'll usually put on some gospel music and I play along. What do you, what do you play? I uh, play the keyboards and I play the Hammond B3. That's right. Yes. Okay. I knew that. Yeah. I'm, I'm strictly uh, about the singing, but uh, my former husband played guitar. So, we often would play together. <laughs> yeah. I played I play the DVR. <laughs> <laughs> That's my talent. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back and continue talking with Janice. Recovering from Religion is funded by those who believe in what we do. We invite you to support us with a monthly or one-time donation. Go to our website, recoveringfromreligion.org, and click on the Donate button for instructions. On the website, you'll also find an extensive database of resources, including links, articles, and videos. We offer 24-hour phone and chat line support, along with the links to meetup groups in 20 communities around the U.S. With our Secular Therapy Project, we can connect you with a professional who offers evidence-based, non-religious treatment. Our partner therapists understand the complexities of rethinking or leaving your faith. Finally, Recovering from Religion is an entirely volunteer-run organization. If you're interested in being a volunteer with us, please visit recoveringfromreligion.org and look for the Volunteer tab. Many of us at Recovering From Religion know that changes to our faith and beliefs about God create uncertainty and anxiety. We can find ourselves lacking guidance and without a community. With that in mind, we've developed our first ever Recovering From Religion Fall Excursion, September 20th through the 22nd of this year. We'll be gathering in the tranquil mountains of North Carolina where the stars are bright and the air is clean and fresh, and they talk with an accent like mine. Join us for workshops on embracing healthy sexuality, leaving fears of hell behind, yoga, a guided hike from our very own Dr. Daryl Ray, stargazing, wine and cider tasting, campfires, music, great food, and of course, great company. The on-site lodges are comfortable and modern, and our registration includes all meals and activities. Tickets and lodging are limited, so register early at recoveringfromreligion.org. Free from judgment, join us and rediscover yourself. Janice, what was the thing? What was the catalyst that said, this is it, no more, I'm done, I can't do this anymore? Um, Our youngest daughter was 10 years old, and um, she was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which is a life-threatening illness. And that came on the heels of just a couple of years of relentless onslaught, just a storm of terrible things uh, befalling our family. And so, I mean, in that time, my my parents split up after 43 years. My nephew uh, was sent to prison for murder. Um, there were other things going on, and we finally thought we got to a place where we had some level ground, and then our daughter received this life-threatening diagnosis. And I just thought, that's it. I don't know anyone else who's tried harder than me to live a, a holy life pleasing to God. And if this is what I get, I, I'm playing for the wrong team. And uh, that was it for me. What did that deconversion process look like for you? What, what, were, you, what were you going through? Um, it, was, uh, it was painful. It was sad and it was confusing. Um, because I didn't really know any other way to believe. I didn't have another framework for my life or a way to give meaning to my life. 
So uh, it was sad. And I spent a lot of time um, by myself. Like I was trying to look up. So we did have the internet by then. Uh, but I couldn't even, I didn't even know the word deconversion. So I didn't know how to look up and connect with anyone who maybe had a similar story to me. And I also felt scared that what if, <clears throat> what if I was wrong? Um, but I knew I couldn't, I just couldn't stay. I couldn't giving, keep giving so much of my time, my energy, my thoughts, my allegiance um, to something that just I didn't think was true anymore. If there was a God, he wasn't loving. And if he wasn't loving, I, mm -hmm. I didn't want to be a part of it. That's how I felt. Did you talk to your husband? Minimally. Our marriage at the time was uh, on very thin ice, was already unraveling. Um, he, he wasn't attending uh, church at that time, and the children already had said they were tired of it and didn't want to go anymore. Um, but I, we had so much else going on, I didn't feel like I wanted to, to bring that one up. And so I kind of went it alone. So we had a, a used bookstore across the street from where we were living. And uh, I waited till the kids were in school and he was working and I snuck across the street to that bookstore. And at the back of the bookstore, they had this door, this velvet door, like a curtain. And above it, it said occult and alternative religions. And I took a deep breath and I walked behind that curtain, thought I've got to find, there's got to be something else here. Christianity, isn't it? And I thought I might get struck by lightning, but I went anyway and I uh, found some books that I thought maybe could teach me some things about other belief systems and took that book, raced across the street. I asked the lady to put it in a brown paper bag, by the way, and uh, so, I ran across so God, the street. So God and, couldn't see it. Oh, it gets better. I hid it in my underwear drawer because that was the one place I knew for sure God wouldn't look. <laughs> oh my God. So I, I read it uh, bit by bit and started uh, going back and I started reading some of Louise Hay and I found her very encouraging and one thing louise hay said was that a belief is just a thought and a thought can be changed and at first i was really offended by that because i thought my thoughts were the right thoughts but then the more i, I considered it the more it made sense a belief is just a thought and a thought can be changed well i have to say that i have almost exactly that same story oh. only mine wasn't mine was an x-rated video oh yeah <laughs> Mm-hmm. In your underwear. I don't even know where to pursue this. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and for sure, when I was uh, as I was progressing along my journey, things would come up, you know, like cussing or saying swear words or watching uh, X-rated shows or things that I had tried so hard to protect my children from and that I also had protected myself from um, and then of course once my husband and I uh, divorced and I started dating again holy dating had changed <laughs> oh, a lot in the 20 years I've been me, out of the same tell me about it <laughs> so it was uh, quite a culture shock really mm -hmm. yeah I, I was married for 19 years yeah. and then when when I went through my divorce then I was coming out. So dating was totally, totally new. I had yes. dated since I was 18 and I was in my thirties and now I'm mm -hmm. dating and I'm dating guys and worse guys in Southern California where they're all beautiful. So, oh. <laughs> it was a second puberty for Bill. It really, it really kind of was. And I think, I think yeah. what Janice is talking about, you have to kind of experience stuff all over again that are stuff you've never experienced before it is like oh let's try this so i i do it's not that. for the faint-hearted no it's really yeah. not uh and one of the things you did after your divorce is you decided to uh, go back to school i sure did and was it ever a good move for me to make um so I had to, I was working uh, at my local hospital doing medical transcription, which I still uh, do. Um, but I knew that I wanted more, and I'd always been very interested in psychology. Um, so I went back to school uh, and got my diploma of applied psychology and counseling. 
uh, and then finished my 600 hours to get my full designation as a professional counselor in Canada. And now that's what I do. I work with uh, people, especially who are coming out of fundamentalism, people with religious trauma, let's say. Um, yeah, and I, may, I developed a workshop to help those same people, an online workshop. And so that's how I get some of, uh, some of my clients. Um, but really, I developed that just because it was so hard for me trying to figure out my way. I wanted to have a guidebook that would make it easier for other people. And part of that workshop is we meet together, we do the Zoom platform, and once a week we meet online. And for some of them, it's the first time they've ever talked with another person who has come out of fundamentalism. So it's very powerful. Well, I think, I think our experiences, when we then seek to impart them to others, there is a, an affinity there. It, the, mm -hmm. I, I hate to quote old, the, the Hebrew scriptures, but the deep calls unto the deep. And, and so right. we, people who see something in you, she's been here, she's been through it, she understands. I think there is that kind of connection. And so you writing uh, this down and then developing into a workshop, I think that is powerful because you know what you went through. And so you can at least offer some some guidelines for those who are seeking to do the same thing. And there needs to be those uh, out there for people. You're, you're so right. Um, it was cathartic for me developing the workshop, but also it gives meaning to our grief when we can then talk with others about it and help other people on their journey. What are some of the things that you've learned growing through this process and then writing a workshop that you can share with people who are just now thinking about or, or coming out of their own religion? Right. I think um, one of the, the biggest um, things that I want people to understand is that there is a true grief that you're experiencing. You go through a time of mourning and it's really hard because it's not a mourning that is understood or accepted in the world, in the greater world around us. You still have to get up and go to work every day. So your entire identity is dissolving around you but you still have to pay the bills. Um, and grief has many forms. There are lots of difficult feelings that occur when we're grieving, including anger. And so I really want people to be compassionate. I want people to educate themselves um, about grief and loss and how that might be affecting them. Um, yeah, that was a, a big one. Also the importance of actively working to build your new communities because church is a one-stop shop. You get all your needs met at the church. And if you are no longer attending the church, it can be pretty lonely, very lonely. Um, so it's up to us. Like we're not used to working for things. We're used to kind of having things fed to us, but now is the time. It's a time of maturity. Uh, you know, when you make a transition and you have to start meeting your own needs, including finding new communities. So I do that by uh, looking for meetup groups. And uh, if I feel like singing, I might host a karaoke night in my home or might join a choir. There are other ways, um, a lot of volunteer work um, that can be really helpful on so many levels. So it's intentional choices. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we rail against it in some ways because it seems unfair and because it's hard to do the work. I don't want to do the work. I'd rather just stay home and watch TV. But trauma feeds on isolation. And if you've had religious trauma, part of your healing is breaking out of that um, isolation and connecting with other people. How do you help people through the grieving process? Is there a are there steps that they go through other than just getting involved with other people? And I know we've talked on this show about this before, where there's, you know, that, that feeling of shame or is, is a, it comes out in, I don't belong there. I'm not one of them. I'm not part of this group. Right. How do you help people find their place again? Well, um, talking about grief, I do have um, my clients make a list of losses, all the losses that, 
they can remember because um, some grief is compounded, like unresolved grief is cumulative. So if you already had a lot of losses in your life and then you lose your faith too, that's just kind of one extra thing on there. So I want people to become aware that, oh, this isn't just a silly thing. This is a real profound uh, thing that I've lost and it's having a big impact. So I do get them to, to list their losses. Uh, and then I also will have them make a list of gains if they can to coincide with the losses because when we have a loss, we do in some different ways have a gain too. Like I lost my, um, I lost my guideposts, say, uh, from religion, but I did gain the ability to make my own decisions, you know, that sort of thing. So I have them do some concrete things um, like that. And then I also have them list out if anything was good from religion, what do they want to take with them when they're rebuilding? What threads of meaning and purpose can they retrieve? And, and build on in their new life. That's important too. And then uh, thinking about what do I like? Because sometimes we've never even stopped to think about that. What do I like? Because I was always told what to like. Well, I like things that are holy and good and wholesome and you know all these things. But actually, I like a lot of other things. Um, so it's good for people to become aware of that. You know, and they're really getting to know themselves because, like I said, you're, if you're indoctrinated in childhood, your identity is kind of hijacked. So mm -hmm. it's a time of exploration and discovering who you are. And it's daunting, uh, but it can be very exciting and liberating. Well, like you said, you experimented, you tried new things, you watched TV, you watched movies. And, mm -hmm. and I think in this process, we have to kind of give ourselves permission. We may not like everything and some things just may not be for us or some things just may not be us, but it's uh, giving ourselves permission to kind of explore our new world. That you're absolutely right. Giving yourselves uh, permission is really where it's at. And and sometimes that is hard because we're still waiting to get permission. And uh, But we have to, again, become the adults uh, and give the permission to ourselves. I'll give you this one <laughs> funny example that happened just a couple of months ago. My older brother and I were visiting our mother and we were, um, she lives with a roommate. We're having dinner there. And mom asked me, of course, to set the table. So I set the table and then she says, everybody can take a seat. And so I, I put my brother's uh, utensils at the head of the table because it's so ingrained in me that the man sits at the head of the table. And then I thought about it for a minute. I thought, no, wait a minute. I don't have to be like that anymore. And so I pushed him out of the seat and I sat at the table, <laughs> which he thought was pretty funny. Taking uh, your place at the table. That's yeah. right. But it was really important for me to do that perfect or even even letting myself um swear sometimes if I'm, I'm angry or something comes up i'm allowed to do that i'm allowed to express anger because for so many years anger i wasn't even allowed to express anger yeah so it's also learning to be healthy swearing was really really a difficult one for me it took a long time to get comfortable i, I, I you know I'm now, still, boy you got that down though now I, don't oh, you know? <laughs> a southern boy so there are certain words that i still hear my mother in my head because yeah. <laughs> there are yeah. just words she would not allow in our home so oh. but it was I can, I can remember that that feeling of of almost embarrassment even it you know it, it was so weird hearing it mm -hmm. coming from me <laughs> uh, well and you know one thing uh too that i found is that fundamentalists um People who've come out of fundamentalism really need to be able to talk about uh, sex. And that's one thing I've been doing is hosting um, Zoom calls just for free, mm -hmm. uh, telling people on Twitter and Facebook to talk about sex because we've had such a twisted yes. and stifled yes. view of it. Uh, and, and I think, again, of what it was like for me go entering the dating world 
right. and just not having a clue. And I find that um, people are very grateful when they can receive some uh, encouragement or have a safe place to talk about and ask their questions about sex. Yeah, because I, I mean, growing up again in the South and in, it, we were just sex is something we didn't talk about. Nobody brought it up, but we kind of had a presupposition. It's a man and a woman. It happens behind doors and we don't talk about it. Right. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, that sure can make for a horrifying wedding night. If, if neither oh, party absolutely. has absolutely. any idea about the other's equipment or even about their own equipment. And all they have been told is it's going to be the most blessed event of your yeah. whole life. But yet you've had no instruction and no idea no. how it's going to be. Uh, you know, that could be a recipe for disaster for some uh, folks. So talking about it is good. Mm-hmm. I have to say, you know, after after I left the church and, I, and then I was coming on, I, I, you know, I went through my second puberty too. It, it, sex was amazing. And I, I and and there's part of me that thinks, man, I missed I missed a lot. I missed a lot of years not being able to enjoy that, not being able to enjoy other people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I've kind of reached this place now where I've, I guess I've gone beyond the Oh, it's your business, you know. No judgment, to Yeah, have at it. <laughs> you only live once. Go for it. You're young. Go for it. Just go for it and do whatever you want. Enjoy yourself yeah. and just be safe. Be responsible. No be judgment. safe. But, you know, but yeah. you know, we have yeah. to take the shame off of it. Because I, I, yeah. I, I had a, I was in an interview a couple of weeks ago, and somebody asked me as growing up in the South, at what point did I realize that these feelings that I had for other boys and, and some of the activities, when did I realize it was wrong? And I, I said, I'm embarrassed to say I was probably 18 years old. It just mm-hmm. never crossed my mind because we didn't talk about stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I had no frame of reference to say, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. It just didn't occur to me. Yeah, and I would say for me, I was, I'm sure I was about 12 when I realized that I was uh, equally attracted to both genders. But again, I was in a quite a religious environment. Uh, so while I was aware of it, it was not something that I talked about or, or I really tried not to even think about it too much. But as my marriage came to an end, I had the liberty to explore that aspect of myself. Uh, and it's been wonderful. And I recently, for the first time, attended a pride event in our community. Oh, cool. And I was moved to tears mm. uh, because I remembered how many years I would have been on the other side protesting mm-hmm. such an event. And yet when I attended, I just felt love. And it was a real eye opener to me. I, and I think that was one of the surprises when I when I came out and got involved in the, in the LGBT community is is it was just the opposite of what I'd been told. Mm-hmm. Right, these people were were horrible. They're going to hell. They're atheists. Yeah. They're all they do is have sex with each other. And yeah, it's all about sex. It's all about it's sex. All based on sex. Yes, I I had those same uh, misconceptions. And, and then you find these loving, kind people who have been hurt. You know, like mm-hmm. like a lot of us have, yeah. or who still have some measure of faith in their lives, and they, it's just become much more private for them because they don't have any place to go. Right. It, it was a completely different experience, and, and and for me, that was part of that deconstruction process where I said, "Well, this is not what I was taught it was. What else is out there? What else is not what it seemed to be, or what what I was taught it was?" Oh yeah, you just touched on a huge uh, additional component, like just the self doubt that comes into play right. if we get to the point where we realized, you know what, the earth was not made in six days and and probably a virgin didn't give birth and whatever else, we come to the point where we don't believe that or we see it as, as metaphor or however you want to say it. Mm-hmm. Then our question is, what else am I believing that's not true? Right. And how can I come to trust myself? And that is another really big uh, issue that ex-fundamentalists grapple with. And they need to read Tim's book, Rethinking Everything. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> See how I slipped that in there, Tim? Yeah, you're, my, you're my number one fan. Though. You're a good friend. Um, <laughs> that's one reason, too, that I um, decided it was time to put together this event in Vancouver for next year. Yes, that was you just, what a segue there, Janet. You, <laughs> you, you should be one of our co-hosts. <laughs> I, just, I just told Tim. We need to talk about the conference because this is a perfect segue into the conference. 
Well, I think that it will be a really good conference. It's called the Conference on Religious Trauma. And so it's abbreviated C-O-R-T, court, and it's being held next year. So it's called Court 2020, the Conference on Religious Trauma. And I have some wonderful speakers who have uh, agreed and are very excited to take the stage, including your own uh, beloved Dr. Daryl Ray. Yes, Yes, our president. Yes. Uh, So I'm really excited that I'll have a chance to meet him in person and uh, Dr. Marlene Winnell, Valerie Tarico, Dr. Yanya Lalich. There are so many speakers coming who are just of exceptional caliber. Mm. And we'll be looking at religious trauma. And we'll also be looking at uh, trauma that, uh, say, one of the speakers coming, Dr. Lalich, her specialization is in cults and authoritarian groups, so not especially religion, but still very similar and a lot of overlap there. And so we'll be talking about the effects uh, of religious trauma syndrome. And then also we'll be looking at um, the healing that's available for people coming out of that. So I feel like it's going to be an important event and it's the first of its kind. I'm just a huge fan of Dr. Dr. Yanya, she was one of our guests and, and her episode is one of our most listened to. So she's incredible. And, she and it sounds like a great lineup. Uh, tell people where to find the conference. Oh, yes, sure. It's uh, www.court2020.com. That's C-O-R-T. 2020.com and of course if they sign up now they get the early bird uh, special the price will be going up and it'll be uh, next April and it's a Friday night all day Saturday and all day Sunday and so we have the speakers but we're still putting together the the programs and I think it's just going to be very exciting and a great learning opportunity I hope that many therapists will attend because we want to be educating and training them for how they can help clients dealing with religious trauma. And also we want it to be a a place of hope and healing uh, for people who have experienced religious trauma as well. And and we're going to be promoting it uh, between now and the conference here on our podcast. We want people to to be aware of resources like this, just like the uh, Recovering from Religion website. So we're going to be mm-hmm. talking about it, and we will have the link to the website in the show notes for this episode as well. I promote Recovering from Religion website all the time, and I'm always sending people to Secular Therapy Project. I just yes. think you guys do such tremendous work and really want to keep getting the message out there to as many people as we can. Yeah, I think it's important to have somebody who can talk to you and listen to you as you're dealing with doubts about your faith. Mm -hmm. That is not going to be judgmental. They're going to be somebody who's not going to try to talk you out of it or tell you, oh, you're crazy or you can't think that way. And and Mm so I'm very appreciative of the Secular Therapist Project. Oh, yeah. It takes so much courage to face our, our deepest beliefs. And, you know, and we've been taught that if we doubt them, it's a sin. So it really takes a tremendous amount of courage to embrace that doubt. And doubt is necessary. It it cracks us open to the truth. And that is a perfect ending to a perfect show, Janice. Thank you (laughs) so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And I'm excited about the conference, excited about what you do. And uh, can you tell us where people can reach you if they'd like to? Sure. They can. uh, They can write to me. Janice at court2020.com. And uh, they can also find out about my workshop, the Divorcing Religion Workshop, uh, .com. And they can find me on Facebook at Janice Selby. That's me. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. What a pleasure. It was so wonderful to speak with you both. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Recovering from Religion podcast. If you have questions for either of us or suggestions for future topics, you can email us at podcast at recoveringfromreligion.org. If you think you'd like to be one of our guests, we have a form on the podcast page of the Recovering From Religion website. We'd love to hear from you.